So it was a few weeks ago, and I was getting ready for the sermon in Luke chapter 9 where we talked about the transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. So it was the Saturday before the Sunday I was preaching that sermon. And I always try to read around the passage I'm preaching from. I always try to make sure I, I've got the context, and especially as we're working through sort of key events in the book of Luke. So I wanted to expand a little bit and go back and read some of the stuff I'd read before. And so I went back a couple chapters. Well, we had preached from Luke chapter 7 about the story of John the Baptist in prison. So I went back to that part and started to read up to Luke chapter 9. And as I was reading, starting at Luke 7, I got to the end of Luke chapter 7, the passage I just read for you this morning, I just kind of stopped there, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again, and all of a sudden, I'm toying with the idea, maybe that needs to be the sermon for that Sunday. I'm not quite sure why, but so Saturday around two in the afternoon or something, it's like, okay, now, do I change Sunday's sermon? One of the things that was twigging on me this was, was this woman. It, it's fascinating because at the end of the story, she hasn't said a word. She hasn't said boo in this story. She hasn't acknowledged Jesus as Lord. She hasn't acknowledged her sin. She hasn't confessed. She hasn't said anything. And so much of our idea of becoming a Christian is about what we say. This story is about what this woman does. And that's sort of what captured me at first. And then as the day kind of went on, and I'm wrestling with this, and I almost, I forget who was leading worship that Sunday, I almost called them and said, nah, not that it needs to change anything, but just so you know. And then I thought, no, we'll just, we'll just wait. We'll, we'll do that after Easter. We'll do what we've planned, and then I'll, I'll preach this sermon on the Sunday after Easter. Now, there's a lesson there, I think, as well for you. Appreciate Adrian talking about the search committee. One of the questions I think you need to ask your future pastor is not, not just what he preaches. I think it's important to ask how he prepares his sermons. And for me, it's always about the context. It's always about what's around that passage, what's going on. What does the passage we're looking at have to do with everything else that's around it? It's not about just sort of landing in a particular place and then taking off and going everywhere. And I, I, grade a lot of, I graded a lot of sermons when I taught at Nippon Bible College. I still grade sermons now that I'm on ordaining council for the, for the district. And... Sermon prep is maybe even more important than sermon delivery. So here we are, Luke chapter 7. And aren't you glad to know that the word debt in the title of the sermon today isn't about money? This is not a money. In case you saw the headline on the front of the bulletin and you thought, oh no, he's going to talk about, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about when we become a follower of Jesus, when we come to the place and we give our lives to Jesus, there's, there's two sides to that coin, right? There's the side we just talked about. The, the greatness of God, the wonderful love that God has shown us, or 
that I deserve nothing, I've earned nothing, and there is nothing I can do to make myself right with God. There's sort of two sides to that coin, that it's, it's all about God and nothing from me. And this story, I think, reminds us of the greatness of God. The phrase from that song, and the reason I asked Edwin uh, if we could use that song today, was that phrase, I'll never know how much it cost. That's not just something that happens when we choose to become a follower of Jesus. That's something that's supposed to continue with us throughout our lives. For little Daphne in that uh, clip from OCC, I think we would say we would want her to have that soft, tearful heart for the rest of her. And that's just not a male-female thing. That's a thing. <laughs> I think we'd say, yeah, we want Daphne to, in the, in the hardships that she faces that we'll never face, we want Daphne to continue to have that soft, broken heart. So when we sing, I'll never know how much it costs. Or the opening song that Edwin and the team started with, uh, thank you, Lord, for all you've given to me, for all the blessings that I don't even see. Thank you, Lord. So that's kind of where we're going today. The debt is the debt of love. And so I think, I think the story pretty much speaks for itself. I don't think it needs a lot of explanation, but I, I, th I think it's important for us to understand this, this distinction between Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon, and when they're reclining at table, a couple of things we need to know. Number one is they eat Mennonite style. Reclining at table means only the men are reclining, and the table isn't a table with legs on it. it it's a... It's a a scatter rug kind of thing in the middle of the floor and the men are kind of leaning in with their feet out and they're eating. I don't know where the women are in the household eating, but it's probably men only. Simon and his cronies are having supper and they've invited Jesus to be their guest at supper. And then as they're just reclining at table, a woman walks in the door Apparently she sees Jesus, and the only way for her to, to respond is to stand at his feet as he's leaning in to, to where the food is at, at, at Simon's meal. And she's standing there over his feet, and she is just sobbing. The, the word is technically, it's, it's like rivers of tears are pouring out of her eyes as she's standing over Jesus' feet. And now she feels like she has to do something. Well, what does she do? Well, she wipes, bends down, wipes her tears off his feet with her hair. And then she decides that while she's there, she's going to kiss his feet. And then she remembers that she brought this uh, jar of perfume, and then she decides to anoint his feet. And while all this is going on, you've got this interchange between Jesus and Simon. Some of it verbal, some of it not verbal. It's, inter I, it's almost funny, right? 
Simon says, man, if Jesus, he says to himself, nobody else knows, if, if this man only knew who this woman was, and boom, Jesus replies to that statement as he understood exactly what Simon was thinking. A little later on, Simon is going to say, if this man was a prophet, he would know who this woman was. Well, never mind knowing who this woman was, he knew what Simon was thinking. Now let's go back to that scene when you first became a follower of Jesus. God knows everything about us. Everything about us. Past, present, and future. And he still loves us. He still invites us to follow him. He still invites us to walk with him. Doesn't matter. Things that we don't know about our future, God knows. And he welcomes us. He embraces us. He calls us sons and daughters. Tax collectors and sinners are a a key part of Luke's story and account of the good news of Jesus. We talked about them in in the story when John the Baptist was in prison. We talked about them when we talked about John's baptism. And when John baptized Jesus, the people that came for John's baptism, Luke tells us, were tax collectors and soldiers. And then in the story in John chapter 7, when, or Luke chapter 7, when John's in prison, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Those were the people Jesus associated with. It's an important picture in Luke's gospel. It's an important picture. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, outcasts, the poor, the impoverished, the prisoners, the slaves, those who were not taken care of by society, the losers, those were the people Jesus associated with. Those were the people he hung out with. Those those were the people for Simon and his Pharisee buddy and his legal eagles from the... um, the law society of the day that he hung out with, um, those were the other side of the street people. If they saw them coming, lepers, sick, they'd go on the other side of the street. I don't know how they did that. They must have been doing a lot of jaywalking. (laughs) How can you walk the street and always go to the other side to avoid the sinners, to avoid the losers, to avoid the sick and the poor and the destitute? But that's, that's how they live. That's how they function. They had their 600 and what is it, 83, 85 laws? I don't know, does it matter? They had their 680 something laws and that's how they lived, that's how they functioned. It's interesting, one of the songs uh, we sang this morning talked about God drawing a line. Well, the Pharisees, they drew their line, it just wasn't where God drew the line. So which side of the line am I on? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What side of the line am I on? Oh, what side of the line am I on now? Now that I'm a follower of Jesus, what side of the line am I on now? Paul, probably the greatest, 
I guess we could argue about it, but I still think a pretty good case could be made for Paul being the greatest follower of Jesus ever, said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not of whom I was the worst, of whom I am the worst. And he opens that line by saying, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, King James Version, chief, foremost. The story's all about action. The story of this woman is all, she never says a word. She doesn't say one word. It's all lived out at the feet of Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus says to Simon, you know, there were sort of codes of hospitality, there are codes of hospitality. We're not unfamiliar with uh, international cultures where they kiss on the cheek when somebody comes in their home, or a kiss of greeting, a kiss of welcome. We're not unfamiliar with that. Um, I'm sure if you've been on a mission trip, you're not unfamiliar with people who don't have a lot just outpouring their hospitality and giving you everything that they have. I went to Cuba uh, with Curtis, Sharon and I went to Cuba with Curtis and Tricia about, oh man, 10 years now, oh man. <laughs> Can't believe it was that long ago. Um, but it's the same story, right? The rice and the pork that we ate, that was probably pretty much all that those people had to eat for that day. And with the micro projects and stuff, Curtis gave us some insight into that, but hospitality, right? And so Jesus comes into Simon's house and he doesn't offer him any water. He's not saying, Simon, how come you didn't wash my feet? You didn't even give me water for me to wipe my feet. And that's not a, a standard thing, but it's something that could have been done in that day and age at that time. He said, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss, which was pretty common, but that's okay. Um, you didn't anoint my head with oil. That's kind of on the high side of expectations, but still, you know. Simon was a minimalist. Get by with the least I need to do. Did absolutely nothing other than invite Jesus, which is good, but he did nothing else. And Jesus contrasts that with the woman and all that she did. And then verse 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. And go back to the parable. Which one of them loves him more? The one who was forgiven the most or the one who was forgiven the least? Her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much, but he who loves little has been forgiven little. Last week we noticed in the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel as we looked at Jesus walking along the road with the two disciples leaving Jerusalem, Luke talks and Jesus says these words that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the, that's the commission, that's the mission of the followers of Jesus Christ, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We talked about repentance and we talked about forgiveness. And don't just think of, you know, I think when it comes to the word forgiveness, we need to pack some other words around that. We need to pack the word love. We need to pack the word grace. We need to pack the word mercy. That I get what I don't deserve. That I'm not treated the way I do deserve. Forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy kind of all go together. And I said last week, and just maybe to expand on a little bit, forgiveness and all those other words that go with it, I think is the hallmark of Christianity. 
I don't, I'm not saying Christianity is the only religion in the world that talks about forgiveness. I'm saying we're the only religion in the world that talks about forgiveness because someone gave his life for us. Someone who was innocent, someone who, who had done no wrong, someone who was put into the most horrific experience of death that the world has ever known. I think a good case could be made. That's the worst kind of torture anybody could experience. Usually each year, as Easter's coming, I like to, I don't like to, but I think it's necessary for me to watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think it's important for me to understand just how much it costs I don't know how you would do it, but that's how I do it. The most horrific kind of torture and violence that could be done to a human being was crucifixion. And Jesus didn't do a thing wrong. Jesus didn't do a thing wrong. And then next week when we have communion, we say the words of Jesus, this is my life which is given for, right? Given for, just flip it over. Now as I receive the life that's given for me, I'm forgiven. Hallmark of Christianity. Forgiveness is the hallmark of Christianity. Forgiveness is the trademark of followers of Jesus. Forgiveness is not just the hallmark of Christianity, it's the trademark, it's, it's the brand. If you're gonna get ink. <laughs> Forgiveness is the trademark of Christianity. The followers of Jesus are known by their love. And I think we could say forgiveness is the benchmark for every follower of Jesus. A benchmark on a topographical map tells you how high and, and where you are relative to uh, above sea level and relative to the land around you. The benchmark tells you how you're doing in your elevation. Benchmark is, is, is a growth point. My forgiveness and offering forgiveness, my offering of forgiveness is a benchmark of my growth in being like my Savior. Again, let's stay, let's stay in Luke for a minute with this idea of forgiveness. Uh, if I was to turn back to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 37, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Luke 6, 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Then go over to Luke chapter 11, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Luke doesn't include it in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in his gospel. He has it separate. Luke chapter 11, the disciples uh, said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, verse 3, Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now that's an interesting difference. In Matthew's version, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? That's Luke's version says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone. Luke's version has that assumption, right, that we're gonna, we are gonna forgive. That, that's our commitment, that's our, our plan. Matthew's version, Lord, 
you forgive us the same way we forgive our neighbor. Lord, you forgive me the same way I forgive my coworker. Lord, you forgive me the same way I'll forgive my relative. Reciprocally, exactly the same. And then Paul picks it up in in his writings. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God has forgiven you. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Fruits of the Spirit. Bear with each other and forgive, each other. forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I think the first small group Bible study I ever did this one small groups and we're sort of becoming a thing. Um, we were trying something new. And the book was by Jerry Cook. This was back in the 80s. Um, the book was by Jerry Cook and it was called Love, Acceptance and Forgiveness. And I think, I think that spectrum is a good spectrum to keep in mind. Because I think sometimes we think forgiveness is just about people who have done wrong to us. I think we need to take it back a step and start with, what about forgiving people who are different from us? Let's start with different. Forgiveness is about forgiving the guy who drives different than I do. Forgiveness starts with me forgiving the guy who drives a little too slow for my standard operating procedure. He's just different, she's just different. The punk kid, sorry, is just different. <laughs> They're just different. Now, they may have broken a law, and there, there's a line we're going to have somewhere where we, we cross this line, and, and we just don't like it because they're different, and then we don't like it because it's wrong, and we don't like it because they took out my bumper. Okay, that, there's, there's somewhere in this continuum, but let's go back to the beginning with different because I think we have a hard time with different. We have a hard time with different personalities. We talked at the, at the search committee about outgoing pastors and introverted pastors. And all the range in between. Right? Let's just start with how we relate and how we deal with people who are different. And it can even be in our own family. I spent... Four days, well, Sharon and I together have spent, I lost count, 10 days? With our three grandsons, five, six and a half, and seven. Five, almost seven, and seven. Um, since last Friday, overnights, um, and two of them Tuesday to Friday for me, solo. Uh, when I babysit my grandkids, solo, all of a sudden I have this huge empathy for single moms. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. And then all of a sudden I was reminded, hey, some single moms have to care for their aging parents. And I, I have no idea how they do it. But what about different? People who drive different, people who eat different, people who talk different. Even on the video, even on the OCC video, 
we needed the closed captioning so we knew what Daphne and her grandmother were saying. That's, that's not wrong. That's just different. And, and I just need to adjust. And, and forgiveness is about acceptance. See, forgiveness is about acceptance. Nothing's been done wrong. We talk about tribalism and polarization and our little huddles we have for people who think like we think or who act like we act or who um, have the same practices that we practice. And that's where the Luke's emphasis on tax collectors and sinners and outsiders and the poor. What if we really were a church that reached out to the poor and the tax collectors and the sinners and the people who are forgotten by society, that would really change how we look. That would really change what's going on in here. That would really change how we feel about what's going on in here. And some of us would be upset, not because anything's wrong, but just because things are different. Most churches, most evangelical churches in North America would be upset just because things are different. Acceptance, acceptance. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite writers, says this, the gospel, frankly, is offensive to modern civilization. It asks us to care about the most vulnerable, who drag, those who drag on the wheels of progress, to give serial sinners another chance, to love rather than hate our enemies, to devote precious resources to children born with genetic defects and elderly, facing, face elderly people facing the end of life. It asks us to properly order our desires rather than exploit them, to stay married in sickness and in health for richer or poorer till death do us part, how well is the broader culture following that script? So for us as followers of Jesus, acceptance is a huge part of grace. Acceptance. Even of those who aren't followers of Jesus, why? Because we believe more than anybody else that they're created in the image of God, that the stamp of God is there somewhere, lost, marred, scarred, fallen, but it's there. So different is good. Different is good. But then there's forgiveness, not just related to those who are different. And that, that should be, that should be essential basic nature for us, but it's not. So that makes the next one even harder, right? For those who sin against us, for those who wrong us, to forgive them. For Jesus to forgive those who persecuted him, those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For those who cheat us, for those who rip us off, for those who steal from us, for those who misuse our resources that we have in good faith loaned to them, those who have wronged us, but always these days, right, we say it with the assumption that forgiveness doesn't mean you put up with violence and sexual and emotional abuse. Forgiveness does not mean there aren't consequences for the perpetrator. It is a complicated and a complex process. It's not done flippantly and it's not done lightly, nor is it done when it endangers or not, when there is endangerment to the person who is giving the forgiveness, there needs to be protection around that person as well. 
So where does that leave us? <laughs> Forgiveness has to be, has to be a trademark for followers of Jesus. It's funny, Simon here in the story goes from being someone who had been forgiven little because he really didn't care who Jesus was. He really wasn't too worried about what Jesus was here to do. But by the end of the story, someone, Simon becomes someone who was in great debt to Jesus because of all that had been shown to him and all that had been demonstrated to him. Jill put the greatest story and the greatest journey together in her, in her presentation about OCC. The greatest story is still the love of God for sinful humanity. The greatest journey is showing that. That as followers of Jesus, that is stamped on us that this is how Jesus lived, this is how we live. Jill said, the journey of the shoebox begins with you. I don't think it's a leap for me to say, based on this story, that the journey of the good news of Jesus begins with you and me. What do people see? What do people see? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see something that's more like the world? Do they see something like they see every day? Are we any different? Do we handle things any differently? In a world that's more and more closed off, in our little group, you in your small corner, and I in mine, are we any different? I think we have to be, if we want them to see Jesus. Next week, Communion Sunday, we're going to talk about Peter. Edwin, you and the team can come back for the closing songs here this morning. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about Peter. And imagine that Estevan Alliance Church, imagine that we're, we're the 11 and we're the women that followed Jesus and we're the group that was around Jerusalem on Easter weekend, what we call Easter weekend. And how would we treat Peter? How do we treat Peter after he comes back in or knocks on the door and comes back from denying Jesus three times? How would we treat Peter when he comes back from the empty tomb and he's still not sure, even though the women have said, hey, he's alive, he's risen. And still thinking about it. And then how would we treat Peter and how would you and I treat Peter when all of a sudden it comes along and he's the guy preaching on Pentecost Sunday? He's the guy who has given the word from God to preach to the people of Jerusalem that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Think about it this week. We'll talk about it next week.